0: Hi Property Investor listeners, Taran Sham here. I want to tell you about another property podcast that I'm super excited about. It's called Think Big Property where I have millions of questions about property development and my co-host Nyong Nguyen has made millions of dollars from it. I think you'll really like it. So I wanted to play another episode for you. You can binge all the rest of the episodes on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. Here it is another episode of Think Big Property.
1: My point is that yeah, it's not the game for the, the faint-hearted.
0: This is the Think Big Property Podcast where Young earns millions from property development and Tyrone, that's me, has millions of questions. In this episode, we're going to conclude our discussion on the ladder of complexity. We delve into the final strategies at the top of the ladder that are some of the most complex property strategies with a high risk and reward factor. Strategies like development approvals, building units, apartments and townhouses and much, much more. The final strategies in the ladder of complexity incorporates high risk and high reward. We delve into the ninth strategy, which are development approvals that relate to risk smart and CDC.
1: Let's distinguish these these two. So the other ones I'd say are just the stock standard approvals where you're not really pushing the boundaries. Um, every council, every city, every state has has different rules, and, and like we said before. Um, The one we talked about before are probably the generic ones where it's stock standard where you're ticking all the boxes. Sometimes it's two dwellings or less, sometimes it's four dwellings or less, sometimes it's 10 dwellings or less which are stock standard tick the box. Um, This level of development application We can call it impact accessible um, versus code which which means that uh, it doesn't tick all the boxes but there is a desire or need for it. So, it might be you know, if you're looking at a block of land that normally you'd be able to put 10 townhouses on but you're pushing for 15 uh, because you might be going three storey or instead of 10 apartments you might be going for 20 apartments because you're going five storey. So, this is the more complex type of approval. Um, you could call it impact accessible uh, or out of the box or you know just depends on the council and the appetite for it because sometimes councils definitely want more uh, density because it alleviates pressure on the infrastructure and things like that however yeah, you really need to. It's a case-by-case case scenario. It might even be a residential block of land um, that you potentially want to put a commercial use on. It. I've seen it recently you know, where there's a block of land, 7,000-odd square metres, um, that normally you can put townhouses or um, residential blocks on, and they've got a McDonald's because it's on a main road. They've got a McDonald's and a petrol station, plus a few other shops on it. And it takes a little bit longer. Um, Like I said previously, with some more challenging applications, take longer, take more money. But because it is a non-essential use or or a change of use, material change of use, um, then there's potentially a lot more upside and profit for the developer. But there is some risk to it because you're throwing money on the line and you may have committed to buy the property, spent a million, excuse me, two million on it. And waiting for the approval to come through, so it's just a bit more of a, an assertive and aggressive play in the marketplace. And this is jo- often where you know the public companies go because they want a better return on their money.
0: I've interviewed previously past developers as well who have actually gone through the council, and you raise a really interesting point that the council sometimes actually prefers a developer to add more density to the land, just depending on. Where the area is, and this particular developer I interviewed previously, he actually was applying for a development in Melbourne for a ten townhouse subdivision, and um, unfortunately, he got uh, uh, disapproved initially when it went through because it wasn't—he didn't have enough of townhouses. He was saying that they needed to build more, and I think the council requested him to do eighteen townhouses instead. <laughs> and I was like, "What? <laughs> How does that happen?" <clears throat> so, he, he essentially did go back and had to redesign the whole thing and, and managed to put in 18 and then finally got it approved but that was just a very interesting scenario because it kind of triggered me when you said that, you know, if council can actually increase the density which they would recommend they would, um, there is a lot more opportunity because it's the same slot and he said and the town plan initially said term 10 is going to be fine, you know, to get through but the council after a bit of time and it did take him a long, lot longer than expected because initially I planned for about a year to year and a half, it took almost three years for it to be done but the profit behind it was substantially greater than what he initially did with, for 10. So the outcome was great but yes, as you said, the risks are quite high and you know, he can be in a development for anywhere between three to four years for something like that as well too
1: and if you think about you know the holding costs on something like that the land wouldn't have been cheap let's call it 2 million at 5% you know that's 100 grand a year you might go yep 100 grand a year is fine but one year—that's a hundred, two, three, four years—that's four hundred grand just of holding costs, and you might get rent of maybe fifteen grand a year, uh, if you're lucky, three hundred bucks a week. Um, so, it, it's yeah, and then the capital is tied up, opportunities tied uh, in there, and the market changes as well. You know, if he bought that in two thousand and seven and came out in two thousand and ten, uh, and the GFC happened in the middle, uh, just those risks because development approvals. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. It is a skilled game. And the other thing is councils change their mind as well over time because of elections, local elections, council elections, state overlays, state sentiment. So. My point is that, yeah, it's not the game for the faint-hearted. Oftentimes, the people with the deeper pockets who sit and land bank on stuff, they might lobby for three to five years or they might wait for infrastructure to catch up with them uh, such that they don't have to put in the expensive sewer that's uh, upstream that's going to come and connect up with them. Um, yeah, I know guys who sit on $10 million worth of land uh, in huge estates and they're just waiting for the guide uh, upstream. Just to connect the services to go past their block, and bang, if they've saved themselves five million dollars or three million dollars, and you know, then they come out of the ground uh, knowing that um, because they've got the deeper pockets and they can land bank. Um, yeah, it's just a different ball game that mums and dads, I suggest uh, steer clear of uh, for the time being until you have you know, one or two million sitting around doing nothing.
0: The next one we'd like to probably talk a little bit about is subdivisions. So this is something that's really, really right up your alley as well, young in terms of subdivisions and you just also mentioned an example about it as well. Uh, this particular, I guess, part of it is subdivisions where we're creating two lots or more. So as, as you've mentioned, you've got a 30-lot subdivision. Let's talk a little bit more about this one and how this one um, goes up in the ladder of complexity.
1: It's very much congruent with what we we're talking about before with increasing the number of dwellings that you're building. Uh, when you're building dwellings it's it's not too bad simply because you can see what you're doing and and you know what's going on and once you've got the design right you've got the finance right it's not too bad i'd say this in context of subdivisions when you're doing more and more of them um, oftentimes with subdivisions the challenge is you don't know what's under the ground you don't know what's under the ground and uh, whether it's a uh, contamination uh, the soils bad um, you've got other things like retaining walls, excavation, uh, you've got um, head walls which is like a if you're putting some storm water into creeks, if you into waterway corridors so at the moment I'm dealing with a handful of things uh, such as um, like I mentioned before, uh, flooding where we have to build retaining walls uh, for roughly let's call it hundred meters of retaining walls that you wouldn't normally have to spend on a flat block. Um, and that's the other thing with subdivisions is land. For example, if you've got a 1,000 square meters, there's only a few ways you can cut it up, whereas a 1,000 square meters with apartments, you can potentially put 10 dwellings on it, 20 dwellings on it, depending on how many levels you go, right? So with land, um, when you're creating multiple lots, you're dealing and you're pushing the envelope, you're dealing things with like slope, retaining walls, more wall costs, bioretention, um, yeah, so civil contractors uh, as well. So it's just a more complicated form of construction because you're moving dirt around versus houses often because the the blocks can be leveled and the earthworks for the subdivisions already been done. Essentially, you're just um, building the house. So that, that's why I think subdivisions can be a bit more complicated than um,
0: building. In terms of say for example, maybe timeframes and so forth, subdivisions versus say for example, getting um, I guess the dwelling put onto them. Do you think there is much difference in time frames or would it be something that um, is is quite similar?
1: One into two subdivision, you can get it done between 6 and 12 months depending on the approval time frame. So, it could be approved in 6 months and then the actual work finished in 6 months uh, which it sounds pretty crazy because all it is just 2 blocks of land, you actually got no building but in that same 6 months. Uh, in that same six months, you can build uh, one or two or three houses. So it, it actually, yeah, it might sound funny and it might sound uh, crazy because it takes six months to subdivision, but it's the process that takes a while and, and the paperwork is a fair bit of um, paperwork just waiting around. Sometimes you might wait two to four weeks just for something to get stamped and that's not unusual. Whereas a building, once it's finished, certifier comes through, double, triple checks it because it's been checked all the way through by the certifier and the engineers anyway. Bang, you can pretty much keys in, turn key, you move into the house. Uh, but because the subdivision is underground, they want to make sure it's done properly. They do you know CCTVs of the pipes. They do vacuum tests. They make sure the pipes don't leak. They make sure they're sealed properly. Um, I heard of a situation where um, a water main was connected and the... Um, subcontractor was annoyed at his boss, and therefore he didn't do the job properly, and mate, just the water went everywhere because he didn't weld it properly, and it was uh, sabotage, right? So they literally had to dig it all back up, and fix it up, and then backfill it. So my point is that with construction, it's all visible. That's why it's a a lot more easily inspected and and approved, Whereas subdivisions are stuff, it's 99% of it's underground, and for example, even con- uh, bitumen on the road, once you put the bitumen down, you have to test it to make sure it's at the right compaction because within you know a month, if it's in not the right compaction, it'll all come up and then create potholes and, and things like that. So it's uh, it's a different kettle of fish and not to scare people, but at the same time, give them a reality check that yeah, this can be serious business because if you don't get it right, there's problems, long-term problems down the track because you're building a building and if the buildings are on bad soil and hasn't been catered for or the pipes haven't been installed properly then you know let's say the sewers, you know, not connected right and you've got um, yeah, a blocked toilet and that's not fun.
0: Coming up after the break, we'll delve into why subdivisions are a little bit harder than building townhouses.
1: I'd say subdivisions in some ways is a harder uh, game to play from a marketing point of view.
0: How the property market drastically changes over time and the impact it can have on your investment.
1: So if you started at 2014 and come out in 2019 which is where we are now, the market's dramatically changed and you've got many, many millions of dollars uh, at, at stake.
0: We hear an amazing story about one of Nung's mentors
1: you know there are some big banks out there but yeah that that's why it's definitely a big boys and girls game
0: and experience is important so that's next and you're listening to the think big property podcast hey podcast listeners We want to give you something extra special just for listening. When you head over to thinkbigproperty.com and subscribe, you'll receive a free chapter from Nung's book called Bankable. Inside you'll learn about which development strategy is right for you, where you can find the best bargains, buy property at a discount and how do you get free blocks of land. Simply visit thinkbigproperty.com to get your free chapter. So, this is, this is so crucial when we're talking about this. It's the foundation really and foundation people can't see. It's like a high rise. People don't see that they spent maybe 6 to 12 months digging down deep, deep into the ground laying all these um, yeah, uh, rods and so forth to build the foundation, the concrete and all that and then as soon as that is done, man, the, the high rise just goes up in like literally like less than 6 months and it, it's just crazy how it's so visible and fast but that foundation is so crucial to ensure that it stands up high.
1: No, no, the last two things we've got there on the ladder of complexity just talk about, you know, three story construction with apartments and then more than three story. You know, Mascot Tower, I know it's been on the news a fair bit. Uh, I'm sure, you know, being in Sydney there, Tyrone, you probably heard more of it than I have. But that's a really good example of risk in a situation where you've got multiple dwellings and it's 10, 20, 30 stories high and they just haven't done a, a proper job of the engineering and the inspection that's all dodgy and now it's costing people, you know, five, 10 millions of dollars to fix something and it's just a really, really bad situation because, you know, it's not like one house, let's say you've got 100 houses and one of them's been dodgy, fine. Worst case scenario, it's a 300 grand build, knock it down, insurance claim, or, or you backfill it, or so you um, basically pour some concrete in to um, secure the slab you can fix that but something that's so big it's it's just so gargantuan and the infrastructure if it's not done right um mate there's just so many many problems and and to fix it fixing these things are very expensive as well at this stage you know the stuff that i've done uh, maximum uh two story i've done i've built a lot of uh, houses i've got a handful of townhouses uh, and, and yeah you don't need to get sexy you don't need to get overly complicated to, to make a lot of money and you know even with the 30 lot subdivision that I talk about. It might sound sexy. It is definitely challenging for me. How I've broken down the risk of it financially and emotionally as well is I've broken it down to two stages. That's what other things you can do to, to reduce risk is uh, break it down to stages. So, for stage one is about 16 lots, and stage two is 14 lots. So, The fact that it has less, uh, sorry, it's not just all in one go. It means that I can stage it and financially I don't have to capitalise or come up with all the cash for the whole project at once. It's just one stage at a time. Then what happens is you get the profit from stage one. It helps you uh, bankroll stage two and the bank's really happy then as well because they know that, yep, all the valuations that you've talked about stack up. There is a market for what you're selling. People want to buy it. You're making money, the bank's making money, your investors are making money and everybody's profitable and, and it's creating a product that people want. Excuse me and then stage two, you know, you've got profit, you know, you've got the marketing channels, you know, you've got the exit strategy and then the bank's a lot more happy to fund that as well.
0: That's the great thing because once you've got a proven track record that the first say 16 lots of sold, you know, this, the next stage when people look, oh, hold on, 16 lots of sold there. A lot of investors are happy or mums and dads are happy, then the people who buy the next lots will go okay, there's a boost of confidence that they can buy the next ones quite comfortably because um, it's a very proven track record and that's, that's what I love about hearing stories like that like the bigger developments obviously, they did in m- multiple stages you know like we've had... For example, in Sydney, the Ponds section, they had stages, I think it was at least three or four different stages that they had to go through but that first release called First Ponds or the Ponds was released you know, with a nice big development and then after that, people were really happy so they released the second Ponds which is called the second Ponds. So yeah, it's, it's obviously that they have staged things like that and it's very similar across the board with a lot of developments I've seen as well
1: it creates social proof as well that you know the people who are going in there are, are decent people they're working class people there's families in there it's going to be safe um the, the buildings look good the landscaping looks good so i completely get that it's just that social proof that people need uh, to be comfortable with that project um and yeah sometimes at the first stage is is the hardest but you put a lot of energy in there It builds up momentum and you just be you know very um approachable with the uh, marketing and give them a good deal where you can. You might give them a small discount of a couple of grand, five grand, something like that, just to get move the stock. You know, down the track, we can talk about potentially you know, tips and tricks on, on how I sold land in the GFC because I think that's really relevant to the current market um, because, yeah, there's so many different ways and elements to it as well as uh, uh, it's one thing from, from to build townhouses because actually... Uh, I'll come back to this, coming back to our number 10, where we talk about building townhouses and units. I'd say subdivisions in some ways is a harder uh, game to play from a marketing point of view. And that's why I've actually made um, number 12 versus number 10, um, which is the townhouses. When you build townhouses, the difficulties are finance, like I mentioned, construction risk, design risk. But when you finish the, the townhouses, the Product is relatively easy to sell versus a vacant block of land. If you've got 10 vacant blocks of land, it's very hard, like you said before, for people to see what the finished product is like the ponds there because people haven't moved in and they don't know what the house is going to look like, what the estate's going to look like, their neighbors, etc. etc.
0: Definitely be talking about that in a future topic because I think that's really, really interesting to sort of unpack as well, just to understand the psychology behind it too. So I'm really excited to hear about that. So let's let's wrap up the last two and I think just to sort of summarize on that one, the ladder complexity for 13 and 14, basically 13 is building units, townhouses. So basically 5 to 10 dwellings and that's like a maximum of, of 3 storeys and we've kind of talked a little bit about that and then finally the, the top of the ladder is building units and townhouses which are multi-dwellings but 3 storeys high and greater than 10 dwellings. And you know, things start to change as we discussed earlier saying that once you start hitting past say three or four developments, it starts to move on to commercial and then like commercial financing, commercial rates and so forth. And then once you go even higher when the big guys are playing the big game, there's a completely different way of mindset in the way that they develop.
1: The higher you go up in the ladder of complexity, obviously, we call it ladder of complexity because it does get more complex. There's more moving parts. There's more things that can go wrong. Also, there's more... Uh, d- need for financing whether it's investors whether it's um, pre-sales whether it's um, just general funding so general funding as you get above the five million dollar mark gets very very difficult and you know the banks are not a fan of it and necessarily just if you look at apra in the last five years or so they have definitely cracked down they push the bells down because they want you know people to put up more deposit and why they put up, people more, put up more deposit because they think it's more of a risk to them. And, and so my point is that yeah, anything more than three storey and more than 10 dwellings, you start to become the professionals. If you look at uh, Meriton, you know, he's doing buildings of 200 and 400 and he's definitely the master of the game. Um, when you've got buildings that big, you've got a lot of cash outlaid, you've got a lot of finance at stake and your holding costs, are phenomenal and astronomical so um, my point is that yeah the reason that's right at the top is all the things we've talked about the past design risk building risk finance risk a project that like that could take two to three years to get approval and then one two years to finish off so we're talking a four to five year project and it's not just five blocks of land or ten blocks of land we're talking 200 apartments so um In the five-year cycle, in that five-year cycle, if you think about the property market, it goes through seven and 10-year cycles. So, Sydney, as a good example, um, 2012 to 2017 was really the run. So, if you started at 2014 and come out in 2019, which is where we are now, the market's dramatically changed and you've got many, many millions of dollars uh, at, at stake. You know, a site like that, you know, he's, he's gone out and paid $10, 20000000 million for sites. So you've got that money. you know, Sitting there, being um, waited on and land tax, uh, while you're getting approvals, and then you're going to spend another, you know, hundred million, two hundred million to build buildings. So my point is, it's not for the faint-hearted. I've I've known several people who've been able to make uh, really good money on it, but also I've heard of a lot of dramatic stories where the market's changed, drops by ten to twenty percent. Uh, and then the construction costs have gone up by 10 to 20%. So essentially, you've lost 20 to 40% and if your margin at the start was 20%, you're 20% behind.
0: Definitely. Just curious, since we're sort of on the topic of talking about say like a Metricon or, or Meriton or any of those large, um, you know, stockland builders and stuff like that, for them to actually start to go through that process of purchasing the block of land and then building and so forth. Do they usually go out to get funding for these through private lendings or the banks or even just through investors? Is that something that they would potentially do or is it usually funded in other means?
1: Generally, they'd go to uh, first and second tier uh, lenders to do that and because their cash flows and their balance sheets are quite strong, um, they're they're able to do that. So um, generally, they'd um, go like a 65% LVR or even lower, like 50% LVR with some of their own um, equity that they've got in their projects or in their uh, bank accounts um, in their balance sheet. Um, But yeah, they definitely go with the uh, more stronger and uh, lower interest rate uh, lenders from my experience. It's just simply because uh, a project that big paying 12%, 15% interest is very, very risky. And for them, you know, they'd rather even just um, float uh, a project. They might even go to the uh, stock market and go raise five, ten million dollars um, as seed capital to get a project out of the ground. And and then you know, because if they can show a, a let's say an eighteen percent or a twenty percent return, and they're giving uh, a proportion of that to their investors, it's a lot less risky than even um, yeah, borrowing the twelve percent, fifteen percent fund. Um, As you can see, if you're borrowing 12 to 15%, if the project takes longer, then they're in trouble. Definitely another topic for another time where we talk about joint venture models there. There's so many different models you can run. Uh, I've summarized it pretty much down to two fundraising models and it's very much relevant on on, uh, how you can do it on a bigger scale. Um, The other ways that they can do it while we're talking about it is sometimes they'll joint venture. Sometimes a public company will uh, joint venture with um, the big some other um, public companies, I'll give you an example. Let, let's say one public company um, secures the property and puts up the cash for the land, um, and pays cash, debt free for the land. Another public company or another entity might come in and say, you know what, we will guarantee the debt on the construction. So it might be a joint venture with a builder or it might be a joint venture with another property developer whose expertise might be in construction as well as uh, apartment sales. So therefore, that they'll come in and say, you know what, you put up the $10 million on the land we'll guarantee the loan for the $100 million facility and from a cash flow point of view, we'll guarantee that and we'll push hard to, to get the out. So it comes down to confidence, experience. Um, I know in the past, one of my mentors, um, his project was I think, yeah, Off the top of my head, over 200 apartments, and they went to the Bank of Scotland. This is about 10 years ago. And in the end, they didn't make a lot of money at all because it just took so long. But because um, they had the experience, they had the expertise, they had the teams, they're still able to exit on the project. And in the end, they handed over the apartments to the Bank of Scotland. The Bank of Scotland had enough uh, to pay off the debt, and and then use the rest of their sales just to pay off uh, any interest that was owing. So, you know, there are some big banks out there, but yeah, that that's why it's definitely a big boys and girls game, and experience is important, uh, and also uh, having a lot of collateral uh, in terms of your balance sheet as well as cash flow. So, um, yeah, it's a good thing to aspire to, um, but it's yeah, one brick at a time, one deal at a time.
0: I just mentioned one last thing. I have heard and seen it happen already. As you mentioned, um, joint ventures like Lend-Lease and Stockland, pretty common things. They did that for the ponds. You know, I knew that in Austro-Australia now, as well too. They they did joint ventures all across there. So that very very fascinating now that you mentioned it, because I just that realization just kicked in. Going, okay, they do it all the time, but we just don't see it until you know you, you unravel it.
1: For example, uh, Springfield was a really good example uh, up in Queensland, where you know Mahasim and Bob Sharpless. Uh, for those who don't know, um, Mahasim Nafanbi is in the BRW billionaire now. Uh, it's a couple of stages. You know, he was a negative millionaire in a lot of debt and a lot of trouble, but he was able to sort that out and, and move forward. The point is that, like you mentioned there, uh, Lend-Lease uh, in joint ventures with them where essentially from my understanding, superficially anyway, that let's say um, Springfield Land Corporation put up the land and just vacant land, they would have gotten their own approvals um, in conjunction with the council there and then Lend-Lease, let's say, would come in and put the civils in. Urban channel sewer water infrastructure in, and then Lend lease would be in charge. For example, of selling the land, so a land lease would put up the capital hypothetically to uh, develop the land, and then from the sales, uh, the income would pay back Lend lease their contribution, and they, for example, would do either profit share or based on a fixed price that Springfield would sell to them on a per lot basis. Right, so. That can be very, very lucrative in the land scenario because let's say you might do 20 lots at a time. Uh, 20 lots from a costing point of view, it might cost them, let's say, two million for lend lease to put up the uh, put in the roads, infrastructure, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And then after 20 lots are sold, the profit comes back in, the capital comes back in, and they can recycle it and go again and again and again and again. And, and lend lease, if they're smart, they might have a building team and they might make a, a profit on the build as well. So they might you know, jointly make 50 grand on the land and they might make 30, 40, 50 grand on the build. So every house and land, they might make somewhere between 70 and $80,000, let's say as an example. And then they can keep rolling that and rolling that through that joint venture scenario where Springfield are just putting up the land, they're not contributing any more funding. And then Lend Lease just keeps project managing it and, and rolling it out and rolling their money over and over and over again.
0: Let's wrap up this uh, session or this episode at the moment, Young. I thought it would be really good for, I guess, listeners out there to um, probably get an action task and assignment um, they can actually go through and, and maybe just apply the ladder of complexity that we've talked about. So, what do you think we should provide for them today in terms of the assignment?
1: I think an opportunity for people, we've talked about a lot of uh, open homes and open for inspections and new homes and things like that. My suggestion uh, for this assignment is for you to go and inspect some new dwellings. So, you can go and, and have a look at you know on the weekend for an open for inspection. Look at specifically new dwellings, you could even go to a display village. If there's a display village near you, or if there's a block of apartments uh, that have just finished and that hit the market, I reckon you open the newspaper, go to realset and look at something. You know, go observe and study the specification on those dwellings. What I mean by that is is study. Okay, what kind of bench tops are they using? How high the ceilings are? How big the bedrooms are dimensionally? um, Collect the the, the information that you have, um, the pamphlets and things like that. What color? Are the buildings, are they gray, are they black, are they white? Um, Start to study and compile a set of information so that you go, okay, down the track, how can I use this information? I know I mentioned things like ceiling heights and um, even floor coverings. Sometimes you can duplicate that in a renovation. Uh, How big is the kitchen? Is it a stone bench top? Is it a laminate bench top? How big are the tiles in the bathroom? Um, Those things after a while become important uh, especially when you're building your own uh, spec home or you're building townhouses that you can either out-compete other people by using bigger tiles, tiling up to the ceiling as opposed to just uh, one around the the, the bathroom there, uh, glass splashbacks. There's so many different bits and pieces that you can learn just by you know, studying a project that someone's just finished.
0: Me up on the next episode of the Think Big Property Podcast, we'll be delving into cosmetic versus structural renovation.
1: The thing with renovations that people like is that they can do a lot of it themselves and they can do it very, very quickly.
0: We talk about the best way to learn about renovating.
1: Cosmetic renovations are a really good place to start to cut people's teeth on the process on what works and what doesn't work with renovations.
0: The level of risk with structural renovations.
1: Just like we've said before with the ladder of complexity is increasing um, budgets and increasing complexity of the renovation makes it more uh, risky. Uh, simply because you've got more moving parts and things are taking longer and you're removing things.
0: And that's next time on a Think Big Property Podcast.